everybody, welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast. We gather around a table, we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is The Gift, directed by Sam Raimi, starring Kate Blanchett and many, many other famous people. Uh, lots and lots of fun to be had there uh, in that discussion. And so I am still Dustin. Who are you guys? I'm still Arthur. Uh, who, that's a question, Dustin, who am I? Who are any of us in this time of quarantine? Uh, I think I'm still Dalton. Uh, I still like most movies by Sam Raimi. I'm excited to figure out what this one's all about. Uh, let's check in. You know, look, Dustin, I, I appreciate your moxie. You're trying to get us off to the races, but I, I really need our, our cold open banter to, to soften me into this. Uh, how's everybody doing? Anybody got some, uh, new quarantine hobbies? It's, it's weird to not look at your faces. I need our our fresh, loose, conversational dialogue to really make this show uh, show what it is. I feel like uh, everything's pretty much business as usual for me. I'm still going into work, so you know nothing too out of the ordinary, except for nights and weekends when I can't go go out places. But you know, I've kind of settled on a routine on the weekends. We've been playing a lot of Mario Kart, um, Ooh. which is fun and. Uh, Watching that, you know, I'm halfway through season three of Supernatural now, so you know, just kind of pushing nice. along on some TV shows, um, just rocking it. Dustin, what about you, man? Uh, what 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 does uh, our our fair uh, patriarch uh, <laughs> do in his his downtime when he's not uh, single dadding it with a, a sick person in quarantine? Uh, well, I mean, it's been pretty normal. I mean, we're in the last week of classes right now, uh, at where I teach, so I'm just giving finals and getting them back from students at this point and just figuring out how to get people's late work and that kind of stuff. And then when I'm not messing around with that, uh, we've been doing a little David Lynch movie at the marathon, me and the boys have, and, uh, they are weirded out, but they like it, so I'm there for it. And, uh, yeah, that's about it. That's, that's all we got going right now. That's so exciting. Uh, the, the, taking the children to, to Lynchburg for the first time. What a, what an experience. Uh, yeah, it, I, I, I hear you guys. I'm calling it, I'm calling it Lynch Ladyland, actually. Oh, no, that's fun. Uh, I hear you guys, though. It is, it is kind of quickly approached, uh, normal. Uh, but, uh, also, yeah, just find things to, to occupy the time. I've been going for a lot of walks and, uh, Mentioned this right before we started off uh, off air, but uh, started watching uh, Star Wars Rebels because I keep hearing people say it's good, and uh, you know, you know what? I agree with them. It's cute. I like it. It's a fun time. Um, all right, that's that's out of the way. All right, oh, oh that's good. I just needed to just need to chit chat with you guys. Really, really uh, feel the podcast vibes. Uh, we can talk about a movie now, I guess. Okay, well, let's talk about this weird Sam movie that is, um, I think, probably unique to his filmography, his oeuvre, if you will. And so what we're going to do, though, on this show, in case it's the very first time you've ever tuned in, dear listener, is we want you to realize that this is an analysis show, not a review show. And that means that we are going to spoil it. And this is one of those sort of mystery stories uh, that, you know, it's it's plotty. Um, like Prisoners, it... it it, it relies quite a lot on what happens and how it happens and when it happens. And so you may or may not want to go ahead and get this into you on Netflix before you listen to the show. But if you want to listen to the show up until a certain point uh, to sort of be preserved from spoilers, you can do that. Because what we do is we do a synopsis, which is spoiler light to nothing. 
Uh, we do a set of thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which are spoiler light. Then we move into a, a section of the show where we think about a class we might teach using this film. And that could be spoiler moderate. And then once we get down to business and there's a musical cue to let you know that we've gotten down to business because we'll have the appropriate box on. Uh, and once that happens, uh, you will all know that it is now for sure uh, uh, spoiler territory. So that's all I want to say there. Uh, you have been warned. Uh, without any further ado, uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon. If you would, sir, let's go ahead and hear that synopsis, please. Sam Raimi's ninth feature film is two parts Cohen, one part horror, and one part John Grisham. Single mother Annie Wilson makes er, er, ends meet by accepting donations for psychic readings, a role that has brought her into contact with many people in the small town of Brixton, Georgia. As her readings get more personal, she begins to get tied up into deeper town dramas. When Jessica King goes missing... Annie is called on to help find her while her visions begin leading her into troubled waters. That's good, it. That's very good. Yeah, that's that, it. That is, that's, yeah, that's, that's what happens. Uh, real quick, do you guys, uh, know that this movie is uh, supposedly based on Billy Bob Thornton's, uh, mother's, uh, reputed, uh, reported psychic abilities and, uh, the situations it got her into when they were living in Arkansas? I did read that. That's very funny. Um, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm deeply fascinated by it. As soon as Billy Bob Thornton showed up as a, a co-screenwriter on this, I had to uh, learn as much as I could, and that, that was what I got. Uh, it's, uh, his writing partner uh, on this isn't somebody he like worked with a bunch, which I thought was kind of interesting. But yeah, I, uh, man, do I want to talk to Billy Bob Thornton about his mom for like two and a half hours. Uh, that sounds like a good evening. That sounds interesting, that's for sure. That and his marriage to Angelina Jolie, there was that thing that happened, if you recall. I mean, the dude's lived a life. Uh, let's, let, you know, if, look, look, there's movie stars. There's movie stars who were born in a lab to be movie stars, right? Like, like, uh, I don't know. I'm Angelina Jolie. Anybody. It, well, okay. That's actually a good example. I, you could even say Keanu to some extent, uh, who sure. shows up in this, right? Like, you know, his second dad's in the, in the movie industry, you know, gets to be a, a PA early on as a kid, kind of has a childhood that would interest somebody in the arts. But yeah, Billy Bob Thornton is just, that's a, he's a weird guy in a way that I really appreciate. <laughs> yeah, I'm into it. So yeah, for sure, for sure. So let's go ahead and go around the table and just talk about our initial reactions to the film. Do we like or don't we like Sam Raimi slash Kate Blanchett's The Gift? I'm going to go to you first, Arthur. What do you think about this film? Um, It's fine. It's very fine. Um, This is the second time I've seen it. I watched it a couple years ago. Uh, I don't remember if it was around the time we did Quick and the Dead or if it was before that. Um, but you know, I, I'm a sucker for Kate Blanchett any day of the week. Um, and Sam Raimi is also, you know, a strong hand. So I thought, yeah, why not? Um, and the second time, I think the flaws really show, uh, the first time you know, I, I really don't remember much about it, uh, which also speaks, I think to its impact. Um, so some of the stuff, you know, I like, I, I Kate Blanchett is incredible here. I mean, it's great performance that she's giving, uh, along with Giovanni Ribisi, who's big but he's also i think tapping into something really good um and then you know you, you've got just a who's who cast here you i mean keanu jk uh kinnear uh kate katie holmes um so it's it's just a who's who really of of the 2000s yeah this um, is a cast uh this is one of those casts that the term murderers row like is made for right it's you're absolutely right it's a who's who of the early 2000s and it's one of those casts Dustin was mentioning in a syllabus last week when we talked about prisoners, um, of the kind of ensemble procedural. Uh, and, you know, it really does lean into that. You know, this is a little more character 
actor heavy quote, you know, with JK and then some of those, but, um, I think Blanchett just really steals the show. I, I think she is just putting in a, a great turn here as Annie. Um, several things I like, I, I do like that beat, uh, in the principal's office where Annie, uh, foresees the fate that's going to play out, but doesn't, it doesn't get turned on her. Um, like you would normally see this play against a psychic where they're like, you know, you can tell the future. Ha ha ha. How many fingers am I holding up? And when they do do that in court, um, it works because of how it plays with the characters. And I think that makes sense there, but I like that it's subverted early on. Um, I like, uh, I like Giovanni stepping to Keanu when he's holding that gun on him. I, I think that's a great little bit, uh, just a explosive little performance from Giovanni Ribisi, uh, who I really love. Um, uh, you know, I think that first hour is, is really good. I, I do think it, it stays pretty strong until the mystery actually begins and unfolds when it becomes very pedestrian. Um, so the, you know, that first hour is pretty established. I think this going into the dramas, the interconnections, these character lives. Um, I think all of that setup is really good. I just don't think the payoff is, is nearly where it needs to be. Um, so predictable, very, very predictable. I think in, in that regard, I think Ramey's style is fairly well on display here. I like the kind of expressionistic approach he's taking, um, especially with Annie's visions and Annie's dreams. I think that kind of, uh, you know, overlay of images, faces with landscapes is really fun and cool and, and kind of harkens back to that German expressionist style. Um, and so I appreciate that quite a bit here. Um, but I think, you know, this is a movie that introduces a lot of ideas, uh, especially looking at, you know, Donnie, who is already villainized pretty heavily because he beats women. But also then he's a racist and a bully and threatens kids. Uh, and then you kind of do this whole thing where you have a court case wrapped up in the middle of this other procedural. It feels like it's trying to tackle way too many things. Uh, you know, there's the satanic panic stuff that's going on with Donnie and Annie. And then you've got uh, the class structure stuff that's kind of hinted at. And, and then couple that with everything else just kind of going on in the picture. And I feel like it's trying way too many, uh, trying to uh, you know juggle too many uh, irons in the stove. And so as, as far as it goes, I think it's a pretty middling entry for Raimi. Um, and that's kind of sad. You know, I, I had higher hopes for rewatching it, but it, it it is what it is. And I'm not a fan. So, All right, well, fair we enough, fair enough. I understand where you're coming from there, Mr. Gordon. What do you say, Dalton? Uh, do you like The Gift? You know what? I I, I do find myself largely uh, in agreement with Arthur, uh, especially w what you had to say there at the end about there just being too many irons in the fire. Yeah, it it is interesting um, in Raimi's filmography in that it does very much feel kind of at odds. His films tend to be, uh, you know, we've, we've done quite a few of his movies for the show at this point. You know, we've done the Spider-Man trilogy and Quick and the Dead. Um, I think we did Army of Darkness way, way back. So, you know, we, we've done, uh, I think we're all Raimi fans even outside the confines of, of this show. But, you know, we've, we've done a lot of, like, looking critically at his work. And I find this film so interesting because, as we mentioned, you know, this is Billy Bob Thornton's screenplay. So this is really not, you know, this is kind of a Raimi gun-for-hire thing, right? This is not a, a film that he sort of shepherds uh, as far as I was able to find in terms of, the, you know, the production history. I, I could be wrong here. Uh, but, you know, I couldn't find anything about him and, you know, Billy Bob teaming up and wanting to tell this story. And that 
that critique of, of just too many, you know, too many plates in the air, uh, too many interests, I think does speak to this really kind of fractured, disjointed nature where it just does feel like, um, you know, art by committee can be a good thing. I think people say that uh, kind of disparagingly to talk about studio films that feel unfocused. Um, and I don't always think that can necessarily be a, a bad thing, right? I think art by committee can lead to, uh, you know, films and storytelling that, that does allow for a, you know, a broader representation of experience and ideas. Uh, here, it, it, it causes things to feel so unfocused that it does kind of create other problems. Those, those problems, you know, that art by committee can solve of, oh, everybody's kind of been able to chime in, put two cents in to, uh, help the emotional realism of the story. Here, it feels like there's just so many ideas working against each other that we kind of do lose sight of some emotional truths at times. Arthur's, uh, you mentioned Keanu already. So, uh, now that I've, I've laid my cards on the table and said, I'm not wild about it. I'm going to kind of pivot to some things I like. Uh, I love Keanu here. Uh, I think Arthur's right. Like it does feel like the movie, he didn't need to be racist too. <laughs> we're trying, we're doing so many things about how terrible he is. And it really does feel like, uh, one, uh, too many, especially for the, deeply deeply white casting of this film uh it, it just kind of it does it doesn't ring great arthur you have some thoughts on this uh that you want to chime in with yeah i was just going to say real quick that you know if they had capitalized on that in any way but for him to just kind of start throwing out slurs just to look at this guy be bad i i think it would have maybe been somewhat salvageable but it just seemed like a really odd flex early on and the just to set him up as a bad guy I totally agree, and I think uh, we'll get into this more in analysis. I don't know that here's the best time to talk about this, but we'll probably talk more about Hollywood's conception of the South, uh, the, the United, the Southern United States, uh, because this is really one of those films like uh, Tu Wong Fu we talked about, you know, a couple months back now, where uh, the misconceptions Hollywood, especially at you know the '90s and early aughts. Uh, when there's not this, you know, kind of boom of independent and outsider film uh, kind of making real strides and, you know, getting big awards buzz and shit like that. Uh, but but in this era, it, it just, when Hollywood tries to depict quote-unquote simple country folk, it really comes off pandering and a little confused and like they think it's still the 50s. Uh, like, and again... You know, there's plenty of out and out racists. It doesn't, it doesn't not make sense for Keanu to be a racist in this film, especially with it being in Georgia. But again, yeah, Arthur's right. It just, it's too big of a statement about a character that, that's really not an issue about too early, especially when, as, yeah, as Arthur said, race isn't really a factor in this film much. But, uh, I do find Keanu compelling here. You know, we, he's got a lot of, uh, flack for his accent work in this era of his career, especially, uh, a little earlier with his work in Bram Stoker's Dracula and, uh, Much Ado About Nothing. Um, you know, his, his, his reading of the bard was made a lot of, a lot was made of. Uh, so I, as soon as I saw his name pop up in the credits and realized this was a Southern film, I was deeply concerned. And I'll tell you what, he shows up and puts on an accent that is, uh, pretty damn good. Uh, I was really impressed by, honestly. It, it feels like a real character. Uh, it, it's, it's very interesting to, to watch him get to be very good in this movie. Um, and, and I think you're right, Arthur. He, he does make such an effective red herring. Um, that we don't, we don't need to spend so much time focusing on how terrible he is. Um, uh, but to that point, uh, of the performances, I, I'm with you there, Arthur. I think that is kind of the shining, uh, grace of this. Uh, 
I might not be quite as hot on uh, Giovanni Ribisi's performance because I do think it, it has a toe over the line because it, it feels this close to caricature. Uh, but I agree. I think he, he is trying something. It feels like he thinks it's a sincere performance, and I think that really does shine through. Uh, and again, Kate Blanchett is absolutely dynamite here. Uh, Kinnear's performance does, didn't captivate me as much as uh, his, his performances normally do, although I think once we uh, we get further into the show, maybe we can talk about that at more length. Uh, but, uh, you know, th- these these performances re- shining through really is nice because it it needs something, this film, and, and I don't know that, that it really comes from anywhere else. Uh, as much as I do find the hooks of this premise really interesting. The idea of the film just kind of accepts at face value um, that Annie is psychic. It doesn't make two bones about that. And to just kind of watch that supernatural element play out uh, in this otherwise fairly mundane family drama and then otherwise fairly by-the-numbers murder drama, uh, watching that supernatural aspect kind of be seamlessly woven through the narrative is really great. And, you know, the seams start to show, uh, as Arthur, you said, I agree with you. It, it really is It's at its strongest in that first hour. This is my first time visiting, and I, I hadn't had a chance to get to it prior, uh, as you had. And um, as soon as we exit that, that first hour and we kind of get to clearly Keanu is not the villain. And I think that becomes pretty apparent early on. That doesn't feel like a spoiler. Um, he... he his status as red herring feels feels really uh, uh, obvious, um, but yeah, as soon as we get out of that first hour, it, that idea of Annie's gift doesn't really become quite as central. And when it does become central to the plot again, um, it doesn't always feel quite as cohesively woven. And I do like the courtroom sequence that you mentioned, Arthur. I I, I love the portrayal of it and the kind of. Uh, Again, as realistic as it can be, the, the, there are limits on this. It is not uh, a superpower. Uh, I, I love that aspect of it. And, and again, I think that gets me through the stretches of the film that I don't love is uh, my just kind of general interest in this this mixing of ideas. Uh, it just it just is frustrating uh, to to see a film again. Ramy is kind of a known as a, a, a filmmaker of stylistic flourishes, right? Uh, that's something we've talked about him a lot. And to see this film just kind of be flat a, a lot of the time, I, I think is frustrating. I think there are uh, some of the more horror sequences. I think he does really get to shine through. Uh, but it seems like at this point in his career, he's kind of, it feels like he's unsure what to do when he can't fall back on his, his horror chops, which is frustrating again, because this does come after the quick and the dead, which even though it's a much pulpier, splashier, louder movie, uh, I think shows a lot of, uh, you know, five years earlier in his career shows uh, his ability to work in styles that aren't necessarily horror. So again, those, uh, that, that lack of, of an X factor, that lack of a je ne sais quoi that makes this film like really kind of have its own identity uh, I, I think makes these other faults that uh, I've talked about and that Arthur's talked about shine through a little bit more. So I do like it. Again, I think uh, there's specific choices that make this film feel lived, lived in. Uh, when Keanu shows up early in the film to, as, to be a huge bully, uh, there's a paint can that, that features prominently in that sequence. And there's a handheld camera work that feels very chaotic. And, you know, the emotions of that scene feel great. Like there are moments where this movie pops and it really does kind of come alive for me. Uh, so I do, you know, I don't want to be too harsh. I want to make sure I, I I've, uh, uh, carved out space for, for these things that I like. Rosemary Harris showing up, always a treat. You know, I love that. Uh, but yeah, it, it just comes across a lot of times e- either as confused, uh, too many cooks in the kitchen, 
or just, you know, a Michigan dude's conception of the South, you know, a mid, or mid, I think that's where Ramey's from, a Midwestern guy's conception of the South, right? Um, so he seems like he kind of gets, a, there's, there's some personality overlap in those worlds, I think, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, upbringing, but it just, it, the volume feels off, I think is what it is. So uh, again, I like things about it, but I, I am with Arthur. I'm, it's a mixed bag for me overall. Uh, Dustin, what about you? Are, are you a little bit hotter on this than we are? I am considerably hotter on this than you guys are. Uh, considerably. And partly because I think this is Billy Bob Thornton's movie. I don't think it's Sam Raimi's movie at all. The only time it's Sam Raimi's movie is when we have like fast cuts of like horror images that uh, mm-hmm. Kate Blanchett's experiencing, the breaking of cups and the seeing of floating dead bodies or, you know, those kind of things. But I think uh, this is a uh, a writer who's writing those lines uh, for these particular actors, uh, writing these situations and writing this particular Southern town in a way that as I was in uh, rural Oklahoma for about two weeks a month ago uh, uh, with some personal family stuff, just as the virus was hitting um, that I heard all of this kind of stuff going on uh, still today in 2020. Uh, and so I, I, I buy it. Um, so I, particularly, I'm particularly addressing the sort of casual just dropping of a bunch of racial slurs. Heard that. Heard that. I guess what a I, month yeah. ago. I don't know if the, I don't know if this speaks to, to Arthur's issue with it, but just I think to clarify, I, I don't not buy it. I definitely do buy it. I just don't know that it's the right choice for the movie. But to that point uh, of saying it's a writer's film, uh, that was why I did want to bring up that specific touch of the paint can and in the tr- like. There's so many things that do feel specific that I, I do like your argument here that this is Billy Bob Thornton's movie as a writer because yeah, there is a an emotional specificity uh, to a lot of the best moments of this film that uh, yeah, it shows a lived experience. This, yeah, this sort of like living in again. I don't know how much I buy his mom was psychic or whatever or had these particular experiences. But I do absolutely buy the idea that you thought you were psychic or you were a person who did readings in a conservative southern town and you wanted to sort of make your living, but you also sort of wanted to get along with everybody. And the way in which you sort of isolate and insulate yourself, the, the way in which Kate's character is written and the way she performs that character, I 100% again, I find it really, really believable, especially in that courtroom scene where she's trying to say as much as she needs to for the sake of the testimony and the deposition that she, or the testimony that she's giving. But she's also trying to make sure that she can not paint herself into a corner in which she can't live her life in this community any longer. Like she's very, very concerned about that and how people are going to react, which is a thing that is very, very true to Southern life experience. And uh, so I, I, I found just that particular touch and that sort of, there's a whole other set of movies in this movie that make me believe it and make me enjoy it so much. I want to hear the story about uh, her oldest son and living in a conservative, small, rural schoolhouse. And your mom is a fortune teller. And well, uh, Dustin, we know how that story ends. He marries Angelina Jolie. Ah, well, okay. <laughs> well, okay. But that's probably not how. <laughs> if that kid is Billy Bob Thornton, but yeah, I, that's the impression I got is that that kid's Billy Bob. Uh, but I hear what you're saying. There are a lot of interesting avenues and, and tributaries off the main river. That is, is the, the, the primary a plot of this film that, yeah, there's a lot of arresting side characters. Well, that JK Simmons sheriff character. I, I want to see his movie, just him, you know, living in the South, investigating crime, doing his kind of stuff. I want to see this sort of, uh, 
you know, really, really kind of soap opery, steamy, uh, you know, lots of affairs and figuring stuff out, um, uh, soap opera story about the kings and all of their other connections and the gossip sort of Steel Magnolias meets Twin Peaks. Like, I want to see that thing take place as well. And it seems like that's also hiding behind the edges of this movie. And so, uh, for me, I think it's a really, it's a really pretty rich world. And a really pretty fascinating experience uh, just cinematically to watch. Again, Remy's got his touches here and there, but for the most part, he lets the landscape uh, do the atmosphere for him. And I think that's a good choice. I think his restraint is actually a good idea in this particular case. And uh, so, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching the movie. Yes, the plot is maybe a little uh, expected, maybe a little paint-by-numbers. But that being said, you you still don't know until you know. And I think that is what makes a film still entertaining. Yes, I had a good guess, and most of my good guesses were right. But nonetheless, I kept thinking about all the details and plot information I was receiving, and I didn't know until I knew. And I think that's worth something. Um, you know, there's another suspect or two as we come to the end of the film, uh, figuring out what's going on. And I wasn't quite sure how it was going to end up playing out. And I had a very, very strong idea and a strong inclination. It turned out I was right. But I didn't, again, I think that's, that, that's the only way in which these kinds of whodunits look, um, is that the reveal is still a revelation. And uh, even if one suspects it. And for me, that's still satisfying. So I liked it a lot. I thought it was a lot of fun and uh, would happily watch it again. Well, there you have it. Uh, Arthur and I, a bit more mixed. Uh, you know, don't hate it, uh, but we are definitely kind of uh, one foot out of it. And Dustin kind of uh, giving a pretty hearty endorsement there. Uh, I, I believe, Dustin, it is now time for you to segue us into another segment, is it not? It, it is time for me to segue into a segment, um, and that's not a very good segue. But uh, we'll do it this way anyway. Uh, hey, look, we're all we're all living our lives at an adjusted normal, as we discussed yeah. at the top of the show. They they can't all be uh, not every segue can be a, a golden goose. No doubt, no doubt. So what we're going to do now is we're going to use this film as part of a class. We want to define that class or the module in which we're using this particular film and what additional films and or readings we might use uh, to uh, teach something about, again, it could be a history course, it could be a sociology course, a psychology course, um, I guess it could be an occult studies course, Uh Yes, sign me up for that one, please. Or a film studies course. And so there's a lot of range and a lot of possibility there uh, for us. And so we have to define those parameters as we talk about what additional films or texts we're going to use. So I'm going to go ahead and shoot to you first, Dalton, since you're unmuted, and ask you, what would you do to expand the syllabus using the gift? Well, uh, last week I, I talked with prisoners uh, about a class where we would kind of look out uh, not only, you know, stories and films that kind of examine the larger social fallout, the larger emotional fallout uh, of crime, uh, and also staying in the lines uh, that uh, Prisoners presents us with this kind of, you know, this this very uh, satanic panic-esque crime, this very occult-driven nature of the story. Uh, I tried to present stories that either uh, had some sort of Larger than life pool, pull, uh, some sort of mythic seeming pull. Uh, and, and this week we're, we're gonna stay in that groove a little bit, but I, I do wanna 
make it clear that this is kind of a different thing. Uh, the gift traffics in this sort of magical realism uh, that I'm really interested in. And when we talk about the films that are, you know, existing that magical realism space, I think we we think a lot more of, of kind of happier things, right? Or even if we think of grimmer things, there are fairy tales like Pan's Labyrinth, right? Um, which does kind of skirt the line of being an out-and-out fantasy film more than a magical realism film. Um, but uh, th- this uh, impulse of, of magical realism doesn't always have to be something like, you know, Hugo, where it's it's nice and sweet and uh, everybody learns a lesson about how great film is. Sometimes magical realism can be spooky and scary. Uh, and, and that's what I want to look at. I want to look at what I, I see as... Uh, maybe an untapped sub-sub-genre, as many of uh, the classes I present often are, it is talking about a weird connective tissue that I think that exists between um, some generically similar stories, uh, but otherwise they have little in common. Uh, so we're going to look at uh, magical scarism and how we deal with crime, because I did want to try to focus on stories, much like prisoners, uh, that, that are primarily crime tales, uh, but but not always here. I, I did want to focus on f- films uh, that uh, authority entreats, or rather the normal world entreats, right? Where we can't fully get our, our feet entirely into fantasy uh, because the confines, uh, the film presents us with a world where the confines of reality still exist, right? Police still show up when weird things happen. There's Everybody has a boss. I wanted to look at stories uh, like that. So we're going to definitely be look, starting with The Gift, but I think we'll also look at The Exorcist, uh, a film that does allow things to get out and out uh, terrifying and uh, and demonic and spooky in their, their final, you know, half hour or so. But I think uh, it's easy to forget that the early stretches of The Exorcist are very very focused in the real and mundane uh, and, and looking at how uh, Reagan's demonic possession, uh, you know, is, is treated with science. And again, we, we long ago did a really fun uh, driving around in a car bonus episode about the exorcist Dustin and I uh, with friend of the show, Nick Sanford. Uh, so we've talked about this uh, at length uh, on the show before. So I don't want to get too into it, but I think there's a lot to offer us uh, with the exorcist. Uh, next, we're going to look at uh, Tarsum's film, The Cell, another uh, film we've talked about here on the show a couple years back, uh, a movie that I, I love quite a bit, uh, despite its uh, its imperfections, I would say. I, I think the uh, the moments that don't totally land in that film or the things about it that don't totally work uh, only add to its its delights for me. Uh, again, I, I think this film really making a crime procedural that exists within dream spaces and psychological mindscapes. If you haven't seen The Cell, I'll continue to be vague just because I think it's really cool and a fun movie to go in not knowing a whole lot about. Uh, other than that, you get to see Jennifer Lopez, Vincent Vaughn, and Vince D'Onofrio uh, all just really going for broke and, and doing... Uh, some capital A acting and having a good time being in a weird movie. Uh, love the cell a lot. And again, I think it is in the same groove of the gift and the exorcist of these stories that allow the magical and the fantastical to, and the surreal to entreat when it serves the movie's visual palette or it's, it's thematic concerns. Uh, but again, still uh, forcing us to live in a grounded world. I think next we're going to turn the clock way back and go revisit a film that we talked about on the show earlier this year, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, because I think that that early German expressionist film does kind of offer a a lot for us to parse through in terms of this 
this genre in which, again, these are crime stories where the supernatural is either implied or definitely confirmed to exist. Uh, and and I, I think that going back to Kevin Dr. Caligari allows us to kind of talk a little bit more, again, because of the uh, rug pull uh plot twist at the end of that film, I think it allows us to play in that space of what does crime do to the human mind? You know, we talked uh, kind of in a macro perspective for last week's class from Prisoners about these crime stories. This is kind of a story that's more focused on the micro uh, a little bit uh, because we get to look at does the experience of crime create uh, such a high strangeness phenomenon, right? A grisly murder, uh, does it create such a phenomenon of high strangeness that it, in the people who are immediately touched by it, might it as well have been magic? Might it as well have been the occult, as Dustin said? Uh, I think these are fun questions to ask about as we kind of talk about the stories we tell about crime and how often the supernatural is allowed to entreat into these crime stories. Uh, after we do Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, we're going to speed things up, uh, move up to a 90s classic, a film that we all love, Fallen, starring Denzel Washington, one of the great supernatural crime movies uh, potentially ever. Uh, And then finally, we'll close it up uh, with another mind bender uh, that makes us question what's supernatural and what's real. And I think a great place to end things when we started with the gift and our questions about uh, psychic phenomenon as they were reported to Billy Bob Thornton as a child. And we're going to go to Shutter Island, uh, Martin Scorsese's film from 2010. Uh, Much like his remake of Cape Fear, a a movie of his that doesn't get a lot of love that I think uh, is maybe towards the top of uh, his filmography, at least uh, the the swaths of it that I've seen. I, I think his kind of weird genre exercises don't get the love they should. I find them always fascinating uh so again that's that's kind of our rubric of of films um didn't keep it super big again gave us six films or so um just enough to kind of get the wheel started because this feels like a class where we can do a lot more than just watch movies uh i feel like we can read some articles uh about uh just the ways in which uh we talk about and deal with and process uh, uh horrific crimes as a society and uh, the impulse to write off murderers and such as evil and uh, how, how that leads us to make stories where evil is the crime doer because it allows us a, a clear portrait of good and evil, black and white. Uh, and again, I think some of these stories, the gift included, uh, let us color in the grays a little bit more. Uh, people who are definitely nefarious aren't always uh, quite as bad as they seem and people who seem good aren't always uh, as wholesome as they seem and, and people who seem troubled uh, might be uh, of greater service and value than uh, people who have lived comfortable lives. So again, uh, we could we could enter uh, speaking to that point. We could even get uh, Shyamalan's East Rail trilogy in here at some point if we wanted to. Although I think uh, I've said my piece on that that trilogy with our mega episode. So again, that's the class. Uh, I think there's some interesting stuff there, uh, some interesting connections to be made, and some interesting uh, questions to puzzle through. I like that very much, Dalton. I think that sounds like a very interesting uh, set of class uh, viewings and uh, discussions uh, to come down the pike. So very, very good, sir. I go to you now, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What class are you teaching uh, using the gift as part of that course? I want to do a a course on deadly premonitions, and this might find itself in more of a literature uh, study, or it could be a film, uh, you know, uh, segment uh, over a couple of weeks. Uh, but I just want to look at some uh, fortune tellers and psychics in, in cinema uh, and in, in books and kind of examine that that character arc and that that trope and what that all looks like. So I want to start with a book 
uh, from a couple years ago called The Death of Mrs. Westaway by Ruth Ware, um, which is about a young uh, tarot card reader who uh, is gifted a very nice inheritance from uh, someone she's never met. And so uh, it, it becomes this very Agatha Christie style mystery as, as she tries to figure out why she has received this inheritance. Um, and I'm a really big fan of Ruth Ware. She's kind of got this uh, just it's a really easy to read uh, mystery style. She's pretty heavily influenced by Agatha Christie and, and the ilk of, of British um, and English uh, mystery writers, I think. And so uh, I, I would start uh, with uh, the death of Mrs. Westaway, which I think kind of lines up well with some of the stuff we're doing here, specifically Annie. I think her and Annie, uh, the character of Hal in the book uh, and, and Annie as played by Kate Blanchett are kind of a nice, uh, parallel. Um, and then from there, then we jump into some movies and I want to start with, uh, when you think of film psychics, I don't know that, uh, many could come to mind quicker than Zelda, Zelda Rubenstein as Tangina in Poltergeist. Um, so I would probably kickstart with Poltergeist to kind of examine, um, the psychic as Terminator, exterminator, uh, in addition to ghosts. Uh, from there, I want to look at, uh, Johnny Smith in, uh, the Dead Zone is played by Christopher Walken, uh, which is a kind of much different story as he kind of accidentally gets these powers and there's a whole kind of political uh, subplot there. And I think it's a very fascinating, you know, look at a certain time in history as as done by King and then in the movie as done by Cronenberg. Um, I think that's a fun next stop. And from there, uh, Dalton's already mentioned Shyamalan. So I, I think Haley Joel Osment in The Sixth Sense uh, is the next logical uh, step for us on this journey and, and, and this movie, um, the gift feels very much of that post six sense world, um, in a lot of ways. And so I think finally I want to go with another movie that kind of feels of the ilk. And that is, uh, Tom Witzke is played by Kevin Bacon in stir of echoes, uh, which I think feels uh, like a really nice pairing with the gift, uh, in, in the way those movies play out and the way those mysteries are plotted and just kind of a, a really fun double bill, I think, uh, and looking at kind of the accidental, uh, psychic trappings of this man who are unlocked subconsciously through hypnotism and, and just kind of looking at the range of characters and how this trope is used in, in different media and in different films and for different reasons. Uh, I think that would be a fun, uh, road to go down, uh, pops. Alrighty, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I would be very interested in that class, and I I love Stir of Echoes. I rewatched it maybe six eight months ago, and uh, that movie still holds up. I, I yeah, Stir of Echoes. Like it it's it's a movie you've both brought up. Yeah, you've both brought it up a couple of times in the, the years we've been doing this show, and I've never gotten to it. But everybody I know that's seen it like really goes to bat for it as kind of like a an unceremoniously uh, forgotten. Uh, like kind of Jim from that era. So I'm, I'm very curious about that. I like the, the direction you went uh, with the psychics, Arthur. That's, that's very fun. I like where we had a little bit of overlap in, in terms of what we wanted to think about. Uh, Dustin, what, what's, what's, what's got your gears grinding? What, what about this movie do you think you need to sink your teeth into? Oh, I wrote a whole syllabus. I wrote an oh, entire class. This is the entire class worth of viewing on a course in Southern Gothic film and Southern Gothic cinema. So we open up the first module is going to be uh, makes and remakes. And so we'll look at the original Cape Fear and then the remake of Cape Fear, the first one starring Robert Mitchum, the second one starring Robert De Niro. And then we'll look at The Beguiled, uh, the first one starring Clint Eastwood, the next one directed by Sofia Coppola. 
And then we move into a section uh, about just sort of crime in general and the Southern Gothic film. And uh, I'm opening with a movie in this particular section that's a little troubling because we have Clint Eastwood again as a director who is problematic in some ways. And it also stars Kevin Spacey. But nonetheless, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil is an interesting film and an interesting, you know, discussion to be had. And so I would open with that, moving into more Robert Mitchum with Nia the Hunter, then uh, back to our good friend Billy Bob Thornton, and uh, looking at Sling Blade, uh, then uh, Chan Park Wook has also directed a Southern Gothic film. Um, it's called Stoker, uh, and it's good. And so I would take a look at that. And then I would move from that crime section into a horror section regarding the Southern Gothic. And from there, I would look at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which we've talked about a lot. And it comes up all the time. And then a little small film uh, that I saw when I was probably 11 years old, and it scared the pants off of me. It's this faux documentary called The Legend of Boggy Creek, made for nothing. It's about the Bigfoot of the South, and uh, it's uh, it's something else. Uh, again, and sort of real-life people and their witnesses of uh, the Southern Bigfoot experience or whatever. Uh, moving on into uh, Anne Rice's interview with the vampire, and that would uh, end then our section on uh, this sort of horror area with this horror fantasy crime mixer with the gift. Then I would conclude the class with something a little lighter. Um, the horror fantasy, the horror fantasy fun, the horror fantasy more family kind of film, uh, looking at Big Fish, All Dogs Go to Heaven, um, and finally The Princess and Dog, concluding with two animated films. Uh, for that, but that would be the syllabus. Uh, the readings I, ha I didn't have time to put together, but uh, that would be the viewings over the course of 16 weeks, about 12 films or so, um, 14 films or so uh, over that time. So about a movie a week, like you do, and a course like that. So that's my plan if I were to teach a Southern Gothic class. Now, I do have a question for you. The Princess and the Frog makes a ton of sense. How's All Dogs Go to Heaven, Southern Gothic? Uh, it's been a long time. Oh, it's in New Orleans. Uh, okay, there it is. Okay, it's been a while since I've, I've seen that, so I had forgotten that specificity of the plot. I was, I was a wee child. It's 1930s New Orleans. Is it really? Yeah. Damn, I need to go back and watch that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, so, and again, go. afterlife stuff, That's right? true. That is true. So, that's also well, speaking of the afterlife, uh, I'm very excited to... Uh, do what we came to do. Yeah, I guess now it is time to get down to business, gang. It's business. It's business time. That's right, you're listening. That business is, as always, analysis. And I do believe we have some analytical hooks by which we talk about this story. Uh, Ooh, do we? Uh, Ooh, do you have, are you chomping at the bit? Because I've got something up top that I'm, I'm chomping well, on. Well, go ahead and do your thing. Do it now. I'm quite excited, fellas. Uh, we, we've all three of us really come, come to like find some interesting avenues to like talk about this movie, right? All of our classes were kind of of a piece, but very different. Uh, and, and I think that speaks to the gift, I, kind of being without genre it, insofar as that it's doing so many things, as Arthur and I kind of quibbled about, that it does kind of fit in a lot of spots, but the, the spot that it fits in that I'm really interested in, uh, and Arthur, you mentioned The Sixth Sense. Dustin, I'm surprised you didn't mention a film that I know you kind of have a soft spot for from around the same time, Stigmata. Uh, oh, the so I, I just kind of want to talk about... Yeah, yeah, yeah the, uh, the the supernatural uh, Christ experience. Yeah, with uh, Gabriel Byrne and uh, uh, Rosanna Arquette, I think. No, Patricia Arquette um, as the lead there. Yeah, it, this is a weird spate we get from like 98, 2002. Like, it's, it's just like a four-year chunk, but there's a lot of... Uh, I don't know if it's a Y2K paranoia thing, uh, 
but but there is a lot of films in this era that are these sort of not quite supernatural like the the supernaturalness varies but they are kind of grounded supernatural thrillers uh is there anything about that movement that like really speaks to us i just i just want to talk about kind of this weird epoch of of yeah i I well i think within this genre go ahead well i was just gonna say i think you know you you kind of referenced it starts around 98, 99, and not just from a spiritual standpoint. We got, um, you know, we've got uh, Stigmata, as you mentioned, and there's the one with Arnold that I can't think of right now off the top of my head. Oh, End of Days. End of Days, also with Gabriel Byrne. Yeah, End of Days is the other one. Uh, we've got that kind of stuff coming and out. And Bless the Child. Yeah. yeah, Bless the Child, another one. Um, and so that, and we talked about, you, you mentioned Fallen earlier, um, and, I, you know, I think there's, part of it is that existential dread that we've mentioned so many times in the late 90s of, of cinema and Hollywood cinema. Uh, we've talked about that from the view of, you know, sci-fi or, uh, what have you. But I think as well in the horror genre, definitely as, as we were coming up to the new millennium and there was so much widespread uncertainty of what would happen when that clock struck midnight that I think that carried over into our, our films as well. And, and you see it in sci-fi, you know, with Armageddon and, and you know, deep impact. And so it, it felt very like it was tapping into the cultural fears of the time. Uh, like a lot of good cinema does. And then I think a lot of it, you know, we, we've talked about some of the stuff post 99. And so I, I don't think we can downplay the impact of the sixth sense as well. Um, because that movie made a lot of money and, and I think Huge. it, you know, had a lot of, uh, people coming in trying to do the same thing or, or playing into that same audience. And so, um, I, I do think a lot of his cultural fear though. And I think, you know, it really did give us some really interesting, religiously supernatural movies uh, and horror movies in the late nineties and early two thousands that we didn't normally get. Um, we kind of moved away from the slasher and into this more spiritual horror, um, which was kind of a new ground, I think. And, and so it was interesting to see that, that kind of movement. It's a, it's a really interesting movement, I think. Yeah. We talk a lot. Oh, go ahead, Dustin. Well, I was going to say, I think we got to make some sort of sub generic distinctions here. Because I, I think there is definitely something at work here where there's something that looks back to older traditions and asks questions of those traditions and sort of reformulates them into sort of horror, suspense, thriller kind of films. But I think uh, movies like End of Days, uh, Bless the Child, Stigmata, uh, even the Prophecy series with Christopher Walken and uh, Viggo Mortensen uh, brilliantly plays Satan, by the way, uh, in that and uh, those kinds of those kinds of movies versus something like The Gift, The Sixth Sense, Stir of Echoes, and uh, these movies that are sort of tapping into astral projection, some kind of telepathy, some kind of ESP, uh, even the earlier in the '90s with the Craft uh, movies like. Yeah, this is a fair distinction to make, I think, Dustin. You were talking about the distinction between uh, when does uh, – w- films in which the god and or the devil like directly intrigue upon the narrative of the, the film versus films in which uh, a character has some sort of supernatural gift. Yeah, there's an inbreaking of the supernatural in both cases, and I think there's still that kind of uh, every man experiences, well, what do I do with this? I, this person can read the future, or this person's got the Bible and the extra chapter at the end of Revelation, as is the case with the prophecy, or uh, you know the, the the true understanding of who God is, as is the case with Bless the Child, or you know this is just Revelation being fulfilled for Arnold in End of Days. Like those things are w- uh, 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 one sort, but they're all they're all still that kind of 
something that we kind of stopped paying attention to has shown up to bite us all on the backside. Like that's that's what they share. Yeah, right? it's this. It's just what's yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. This this kind of this idea that uh, the modern world has blind. It's kind of ties us back into onward from a couple of weeks ago. Actually, uh, the, the modern world has blinded us to the obvious magics that live among us. Right. This kind of uh, this idea that uh, I would. Jokingly, uh, we talk about online. If look, if you're online like I am, you've seen the jokes about decalcifying your third eye. Uh, but this, this is kind of a fun idea to jump off of with what we're talking about here, right? The because uh, I'm clearly f- not online like you are. Uh, we look, you shouldn't be. Uh, the idea that um, the modern world has, uh, you know, made our brains uh, less perceptive to both each other and the natural world, and you can get as hippy dippy or uh, magical with that kind of thinking as you want to get. Uh, but I think onward and this kind of weird subgenre of thrillers we're talking about all play into this idea that the world is more magical and interesting than we give it credit for, and, and the modern world is kind of. Uh, blinded us to that right that's sort of the idea all of these narratives are playing with i I think so it's our consumerism and all of this that we've done with our lives to make our lives so much easier and more efficient and much more profitable and much more explainable yeah and that they're and well i mean think about the rise of the x-files same sort of time period that we're talking about from 93 Mm. 94 up into the end of the 90s it's the same kind of idea is that there's got to be something more out there and, uh, you know, and even hearkening back to like an old TV show, like the unsolved mysteries with Robert Stack. Um, oh, the like, classic. Yeah. The, 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 all of that sort of Reagan era leading into the end of the Clinton era kind of moment is generally kind of, um, sterile spiritually. And I think that's sort of reflective of these kinds of films. Well, and it's reflective of like a, a, resurgent uh you know if you want to look at evangelism as kind of a, a neo revival movement right the the explosion and proliferation of of american evangelical christianity like throughout the 80s 90s and aughts uh it does share a lot of roots with you know the depression era revival movement it is it is religion for the masses it is saying hey uh, much as you know, the the revival era, the the early part of the 20th century is kind of a response to other social movements at that time. Um, you know, these these are a response to yeah, as you've said, Dustin, kind of religiously sterile times. And as you know, I think that goes hand in hand with Arthur's comments about kind of a general societal paranoia or existential dread. You know, we talk about the end of history more than we probably should on this show. That Dustin, you want to clue the listener in real quick, just for frame of reference on that? I don't remember all the names. Uh, Francis Fukuyama is the name of the uh, guy who wrote the essay, and the essay simply argues that uh, history up until the 20th century was this uh, entire uh, debate between capitalism and socialism with the fall of the Soviet Union in 1989. That's the end of history, and now we've entered into a time of global capitalism. And uh, so it's kind of in terms of history of struggle. Thank you for that footnote. It was very helpful uh, because I knew you'd do a better job than I did, uh, than I would have. But yeah, again, uh, all this stuff that kind of fits into this weird era of the the end of the 90s, the beginning of 2000s, I think there's a reason we come back to this era of film so much other than that, you know, the three of us just were coming to really fall in love with movies during that time. Uh, I think outside of that, there's a lot of interesting movies from that era the one question i I have to kind of put a pin in this conversation about this weird subgenre before we move on 
all of the films we've talked about have like a varying degree of the supernatural, if that makes sense. And Dustin, you've kind of alluded to that too and making a genre distinction. Um, I, this is just kind of a, uh, you know, a qualitative thumbs up, thumbs down, what do you think question, but what do you guys like? Do you like it when the supernatural is unknowable? Do you like it when the film doesn't ever come out and tell you exactly who's magic, who's not, what's magic, what's not? Uh, I think the gift is trying to have its cake and eat it too at times in this regard. Uh, and you guys can expand upon how you feel about how the gift fits in here. But what do you think about these kind of supernatural thrillers and the level of supernaturalness that's allowed to entreat into the stories? What I would say is I like them both. I like it when uh, the – but I like it when they both invoke mystery, that the occult thing like the gift is just sort of unexplainable. We don't know the rules. I didn't like so much the grandmother having it. I mean I love to see Aunt May back, but that being said, I didn't need it uh, for you know the sort of hereditary psych- psychic gifting. Mm. Uh, and whatnot. And by the way, those weren't persimmons in those baskets, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, I know what a persimmon looks ever, like, and that's not what it is. Ever the horticulture pedant, ready to shoot your movie's inaccuracies. Thank you, Dustin. Sorry. No, uh, look, no, we, uh, that's what you're here for. I, uh, so, but I, I like that, and I also like it when um, it's not so much like Da Vinci Cody with the religious stuff. Like, oh, the church has been hiding and lying. But, like, there's just there's just more mystery than you realize. Mm. There's more going on than you understand. Something more – Bless the Child is probably my favorite of the religious, quote-unquote, you know, sort of – So if we would say uh, Stir of Echoes, uh, The Gift, and The Sixth Sense are kind of occult mm-hmm. uh, versions of the supernatural thriller, and then the organized religious versions are your ends of days and your stigmatas and whatnot. Your omens, too, probably. Bless- your omen, I mean, I think the omen would count in the category for sure. Well, the exorcist for that matter, uh, which I rewatched recently with my son and, uh, it was bonkers. Uh, anyway, I would say that, uh, the, the appeal to mystery, like Bless the Child does, I like that there's just, there's just more going on. The kingdom of, the kingdom of God is within you and around you, which is actually a quote from Luke's gospel, which is sort of like the big reveal of the story. It's like, we actually believe this, uh, idea. That's, that I think is fascinating as opposed to end of days, which is like, Oh, well, here's what every single prophecy means. And here we go. And now you fight the big fatty from, uh, the, that, uh, uh, dark city bad guy, you know, uh, I don't care. Yeah, no, I, I get you. Uh, Arthur, what about you? I'm, I'm fairly in agreement. I think I, I, I don't mind. I, I really kind of dig, you know, stir of echoes. I, I really enjoy because I, I think I like the, element of this kind of every man whether it's you know a man or woman or whatever but just kind of this you know joe next door who gets some kind of tap into a, another realm I, I think there's something really cool about that that's why i like uh sort of echo so much and, and i like uh you know the concept of the dead zone as well for for similar reasons because i think uh, uh just tapping in slightly to another realm is really cool uh to dustin's point yeah i think you know something like end of days where it's very blockbuster big heavy handed nonsense it just doesn't work for me i like some subtlety there i think um as subtle as you can be in a religious horror film i guess um i really like you know exorcism of emily rose which does i think a really good job of carrying this procedural crime drama interspersed with this kind of odd uh ghost possession exorcism thing as well. I, I, I like that kind of, 
I like when the natural world, I think, is interrupted heavily by the spoopy and whatever means that comes from. Yeah, I, I, I think I hear you there, Arthur. I, I, I Make your choice, but make it bold, right? Yeah, if you're going to give me, like, a literal devil, make it like Constantine, where I know the literal devil is real and is probably going to show up by the end of the movie, like, the whole time. I've never seen End of Days, but from what I understand, I know that movie kind of, like, plays its, is the devil going to show up cards pretty close to the chest for a while? Is that an accurate summation? I feel like yeah, I watched it a couple so. years ago, and I just don't remember much about it. I, I... Well, there you go. It's forgettable. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you guys. I, I like – give me one or the other. Um, you know, I like Fallen in that regard. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Dustin, that kind of has a foot in both categories where there is a literal biblical demon, but the knowability of it is so beyond that, you know, the, the film doesn't feel the need to explain a, a whole, whole lot other than some basic rules. Uh, Arthur, you mentioned – oh, go ahead, Dustin. I was going to say, a discussion we didn't quite get into because Arthur gave a slightly different taxonomy of fantasy last week when we talked about – or two weeks ago when we talked about Onward. Mm. But uh, what the standard or one of the other uh, ways in which we talk about fantasy is the high fantasy where it's super high stakes and it's an entirely creative universe versus low fantasy, which there's not a whole lot of magic, but it comes in here and there and the stakes are kind of lower. I kind of like my supernatural thrillers to be like that. Fallen seems to be like a, a low fantasy religious thriller as opposed yeah, to they're not days, trying to high fantasy it's about the end of the world right that's a super good distinction yeah the fallen is just about can we stop a, a serial killer that nobody else can stop probably uh versus the end of the world yeah i i think a strong choice arthur mentioned like when the spoopy uh really deeply messes with the natural world i think uh, hereditary is a fantastic example there uh where we just get the two working in concert uh and fighting against each other for kind of the runtime of the film uh, i love anyway this has been a fun conversation uh those, those that su sort of uh supernatural subgenres is really the big big one i absolutely want to talk about dustin do you or arthur do you have anything uh, that you want to throw in the conversation popper I got lots of things. Um, I'm going to talk about the ladies first. So, we absolutely should because this is definitely a Dead Girl Town movie. Yeah, well, okay, so we got <laughs> Dead Girl Towns. So we got Katie Holmes to talk about, but we also have Kate Blanchett, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, part of the reason why I was so strongly wanting to place this film within the context of the Southern Gothic is because American Gothic literature overwhelmingly is a meditation on sort of societal guilt about the Salem witch trials and the execution of those witches at Salem. Now, in terms of what actually happened, those witches were hanged. There weren't any, there were no witches. There are no witches at Salem. Let's be very clear. Read Stacy Schiff. Uh, she's got a great book about, uh, about the Salem witch trials entitled Witches, which is an historical investigation, which is brilliant, but no witches at all. Nobody's practicing any form of witchcraft, devil worship, or anything like that. This is just a mass hysteria, finger-pointing, accusational kind of thing. They were hung, but the popular imagination is that they were burned. And when Keanu Reeves' character keeps making these accusations about burning and about witches, about outsiders, I think that's a lot of what this particular film is meditating on, is our societal guilt, uh, as particularly a southern version of that guilt, in which we pick a group of outsiders and if we don't like who they are, what they're doing, or they get in our way a little too much, they become a little too noticeable, then all of a sudden uh, it gives us permission to threaten, to terrorize, and eventually lynch and kill them. That's my preamble. What are you guys' thoughts or reactions to that? 
Well, it's interesting you you mentioned uh, the look. I'm glad you brought up. There's no witches. I also want to bring up before everybody gets super excited uh, about the uh, the persecuted women uh, in this story. Let's not forget that these white women uh, threw a West Indian woman under the bus uh, and said she was the one that taught them about the devil. Uh, just wanted to throw that out there because we've touched on like the weird uh, kind of exploitative feeling. Uh, invocation of the 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 South's history of racism in this film, uh, and then proceeds to have one black person with a speaking line, I think, and he's you know uh, a, a dishwasher at a bar, a bar back. Uh, so I want to throw that out there, but you, you're right, Dustin. It's it's good for us to talk about the, the excuse of uh, you know whether it's uh, you know religious dogma or general uh, fear of the outside uh, that, that use of let's rally against somebody that makes us feel uncomfortable and make them feel shitty uh, I mean again it's there's a reason uh, it, it was uh, used to target women uh, there's an you know when you have a society that's trying to be structured around uh, male authority uh, women of means in your your uh, colony complicate that Uh when you're Keanu Reeves, uh, uh, a lady uh, telling uh, your wife that you beat to get the heck out of Dodge uh, kind of throws a wrench in your, your party, right? So again, whatever the excuse is, whether it's they're psychic or they're giving my wife good advice, uh, yeah, it's, it, it does become about uh, control, whatever it is, or uh, the, the branding of an outsider. I mean, for sure, and it supports structures of patriarchy still. And uh, and I think Billy Bob Thornton in his script writing is pretty smart there in the way he's invoking that and the way in which – oh, Hillary Swank. We haven't talked nearly enough about Hillary Swank. No, whose performance really kind of bothers me, uh, which is why I haven't brought it up. Uh, it That character feels almost too dumb. Like I, it's very good that we're talking about like – cycles of abuse and especially like uh when the the cycles of abuse are, are part of a family's dynamic like how those situations become you know see i uh, don't know unescapable in an addictive way i don't i think that character needs like 13 percent more guile or something I, I don't know what it is uh maybe it's kim dickens somebody that's actually from the south needs to be portraying that character but there's something about hillary swank's performance that feels off to me and a little inauthentic i think the moment in which so that's why i haven't brought it up is when she defends her husband uh it's in the court scene when he talk when she uh when the uh, attorney gives a testimony that uh she had said in a reading that he was just a crazy insecure redneck and is not nearly crazy enough to kill somebody that's a fair point. You know, I, I, her guile, but is not in her own self-interest. And just like I believe the sort of, you know, casual just throwing of racial slurs by Keanu Reeves' character, um, I've met women like this character and uh, personally know some um, right now that I occasionally have conversations with, like, you know what you need to do is you need to leave your husband. Oh well, again, and that's yeah, that's uh, th that is an experience I th I think is far too common uh, for everybody uh, to either have lived it or know somebody that's lived it, and yeah, I, it's not the situation; it, it is a performance thing. But I think the character is important, uh, and again, I think it's effective in framing Keanu as a bad dude and very potentially a, a murderer. But I, I also think the ways in which uh, the film engages with both of those characters is really interesting. I think it is just a matter of the performance itself kind of uh, didn't totally sit right with me for whatever reason. Well, I want to come to uh, but Keanu I, yeah. versus Greg Kinnear in a minute. Um, but so, 
Ooh, I'm excited so about that conversation. That for just a second because I want to talk about Katie Holmes um, as Miss King. I forget her first name. Debbie. Jessica. Stacey. Jessica. That's what I meant to say. Didn't you hear me say Jessica? Uh, Jessica King. Uh, because she is – I think the movie is – this is the, the biggest flaw that I find in the movie. The movie sort of makes her homicide slightly justified. Totally. It's a problem. Yeah. 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 It's a problem. Uh, I, I do think it's it fits interestingly with Keanu, who we'll get to, that the, the victim is an asshole. Uh, I think that's an interesting trope, right? Uh, I, I think the film tries its best to say just because somebody's a jerk doesn't mean they deserve to get murdered. Um, but yeah, it, it does kind of, there, there feels, it's like those moments towards the end of Gone Girl where somebody could definitely read the movie as, uh, uh, wrong. I, I, I can't find the articulation that I want here, so I'm going to abandon, uh, that example. But yeah, it's, it's dicey. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the portrayal of, of Jessica. It is definitely dicey. Because it seems like she's punished because she has not, I mean, she's engaged with this guy and she's, you know, she's got at least two other boyfriends. And it kind of makes it seem like she's kind of asking for it. She's playing with fire, and she just got herself burned. And uh, I, 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 it, it troubles me because it does make her look like a bad person, as opposed to a person who's just sort of deciding, making up her mind uh, to settle her life, uh, you know, settle down her life, uh, and uh, whether she's going to settle down or not settle down, and either option being totally fine. Um, seems to be a real problem here yeah and it's almost as much really it's not what she does so much as it's like the actions that that character is assigned so much as it is that the scene where we do see how the murder played out i, I think that's the moment where like they, they let the that before and katie holmes is really damn good uh in that scene yeah, she is uh she's great uh but yeah it it is a weird call uh to, to like show us and like have the frame the scene be framed kind of in a, a light that is, if not sympathetic uh, to Greg Kinnear, I don't think it's sympathetic to him, but it definitely is understanding. It's not, a, again, it's not a great look. It's totally off for sure. I, th- I think a lot of it might come back to some of the writing that uh, me and Dalton spoke to at least, is it feels that a lot of the tertiary characters outside of, you know, Annie feel very uh, stereotypical or leading into caricature mm-hmm. and so i you know i think the faults with uh uh hillary swing's character or, or giovanni ribisi's character i, I think kind of lend themselves to you know that as well with katie holmes and that it is very problematic i think the way it's framed but it also feels like there wasn't really a lot of nuance ascribed to any of these characters to begin with yeah i think you're absolutely right there arthur um i think it also kind of plays with i i think katie Holmes, Jessica King, uh, and uh, Donnie Barksdale, Keanu's character, and then Kinnear's uh, character, Wayne. Like, all three of those characters are are characters that seem to be the ways in which the film is trying to ask us to question, like, our, our immediate sympathies, right? Or just asking you to look below the surface. Look below the surface of a person <laughs> to see the things that are less obvious. Sorry. I got a little tongue-tied there for a second. Uh, but yeah, it, it's simultaneously that some of these side characters are not super well-sketched. They're kind of shallow uh, caricatures, and the actors having to do a lot in the performance to bring some life to them. Or it is these three characters are so complex, 
but lack maybe a scene or two to add further context that we can't really ever know them. And I, I yeah. do like a film that says, yeah, I, I like a film that says, you know, challenge your, your preconceived notions about like a murder victim and a murderer and a prime suspect. Uh, it just isn't always super successful when it, it wants to go down that line of questioning. Well, I, I absolutely. And I think that's what leads us to the sort of dichotomy here between uh, Keanu Reeves's uh, Danny Barksdale character and uh, Greg Kinnear's Wayne character. Because Wayne's yeah, the alpha douchebag who's not a murderer, uh, and, and the beta baby who definitely is the beta nice guy who does murders, and the alpha douchebag who maybe did a hit once or twice, but definitely didn't do a murder. I mean, the movie does say all the men suck, and I'm kind of down for that. I, I don't know. The, so that you say that, comma, but the film does end on you know, Kate uh, Blanchett, who again love her performance, love the character of Annie. But you can tell it's a movie that a dude wrote about his mom because it is so much about the asexual mommy, right? Like the one dude in town who Kate Blanchett like feels a, a, a kindling for turns out to be a murderer. Uh, and uh, the film rewards her uh, by not wanting to sleep with dudes by saying, ha, your judgment uh, in not sleeping with anybody is good because the guy you like turned out to be a murderer. Like that's a weird call. And then for the the resolving moment to be I'm over – my dead husband. Hello, my three sons. Please stand in a trench coat and be my new husband. Like, I, I don't know. I don't love it. Okay, well. I don't love okay. it. But I do like what you're saying, that it does frame, like, no, uh, men live, men are re reared in a toxic culture, and they must do some deep internal work. Elsewise, they do become toxic. Uh, as a rule, I do think there's a, a fine point you make there. I mean, Sheriff Pearl with his pearl gripped pistol, hilarious choice, by the way. Uh, he's not great. Uh, Gerald Weems, the, uh, the defense attorney, he kind of seems like a dick despite, you know, doing his best to, uh, be a, a good defense Although lawyer. my son shouted uh, at yeah, the top of his lungs, look, it's Mr. Noodle when we were watching that moment, which was very hilarious. Love Michael Jeter. Yeah, Love great. me that Michael Jeter. But I, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, Greg Kinnear, uh, and I get Greg Kinnear, Gary Cole's character, uh, the, the DA, he really sucks yeah. uh, and is, you know, another red herring. So it is a, a an argument that I do think the film makes, uh, and I think that is speaking to the the lived experience of it right the billy bob thornton of the screenplay this this is a guy who you know was raised by a, a strong mom who uh was kind of an idiosyncratic person and probably imparted a lot of lessons to him one of those being like look at how other men act don't be like that i want to trouble your asexuality thing though because i think it's it's perverted or controlling sexuality that the movie's sort of trying to interrogate that greg kinnear wants totally to possess and he thinks because uh, Jessica was not that, Kate Blanchett's character will eventually be that. And this is what uh, Giovanni Rabisi's character helps us to see. I think even Keanu helps us see. Because of oh, his history of sexual abuse. I think Keanu too. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead with Because, yeah, yeah, I think right. Rabisi's character might be a good place for us to end, right? Because he does kind of uh, – his character kind of wraps around the most supernatural stuff in the film. So maybe we can we can get to him. But I think – uh, Keanu, yeah, also does interrogate that though, because he, he's the first one to be like, yeah, yeah, I'm not trying to control it. Like, I, I'm the only guy in town that, that's good in bed, and that's the reason, uh, everybody sleeps with me, even though I clearly suck. Uh, it, it is a, giving him this weird moment to kind of air like, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a misogynist, but like, at least I'm upfront about it. Uh, it, it is a weird moment that says Greg Kinnear's kind of, uh, passive, 
controlling, uh, manipulation, uh, of the women in his life, uh, is more insidious, uh, than a dude who is out and out visibly bad. It, it is right. a weird cross-examination of, of levels of, uh, toxic behavior. Well, yeah, and I guess, you know, sort of, I, I would, I want to sort of make this argument that Giovanni Rabisi's life at this point he he is only one friend, one person he loves, one person he cares about at all in his life right now, yeah. and that's Kate Blanchett, right? And I have no indication, even when he says I love you, I mean I know it's his ghost that's saying it. He's not uh, romantically interested in her. It's not, yeah. It's not sexual in any way. And um that what ends up happening as a result of the various forms of toxic masculinity is that really the best option for somebody who suffers under that, whether it's someone who suffers under sexual abuse, in the case of Giovanni Ribisi's character, uh, Buddy, I think it was his name, or in the case of Kate Blanchett's character, who's suffering under, I mean, the sort of, you know, and, uh, overtures by Greg Kinnear, even though he's a murderer, uh, is to just opt out. To just not play the game anymore. Well, and I... that's something a little bit more interesting and nuanced than just simply, you know, rewarding your asexuality as a stepmom or whatever because the kids don't like it yeah okay that's fair uh i i think you make a a fine argument i guess i just do seeing see it as fitting into a a a trope of the you know kind of stock female characters we get and the ways in which uh, a hollywood film uh, allows uh, a female to be sexual right and so often as it is in, in films with you know moms or single moms for whatever reason like sexuality is take, kind of taken off the table uh, so while i think you make some good arguments there in terms of what the film is doing uh with with that character sexuality because again the, the film sexualizes her like make no mistake about it uh oh for sure i, I done seen the dream sequence uh that's that's some that's some foxy stuff uh one so cannot help but it's kate blanchett so, yeah, I yeah. mean, come on. Well, look, it's it, it's an interesting calls are made in this film, I guess is what I'm saying. The the film allows Annie Wilson to exist as a sexual creature when it's convenient for the camera, but not when it might make for a more interesting screenplay, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, but I, I think your arguments for the choices it does make, I think that they're, they're sound. Well, okay. Uh, so there's a lot of debate to be had, and I, I mean, I'm not trying to like, you know, check and mate that or whatever, but... No, 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 no. I, I'm just presenting a counter, but I, I think you make some good yeah. points. So, uh, dear listener, let us know what you think. Um, are there other major themes that we want to tackle? Those are the things I was really thinking about a lot with the movie. Uh, well, no, I was just going to say, I was kind of looking over my notes, and I do feel like we've gotten to a, a lot of stuff that I wanted to talk about. Um, you did mention that the, the film kind of had you fooled for most of its runtime. I think when it became clear that Gary Cole uh, was a red herring, I was pretty sure it was uh, Greg Kinnear. Um, and so I was not super surprised by that uh, that reveal, which didn't like hurt my. Well, I, I want to be I want to be clear. I suspected Greg Kinnear pretty okay, early. Cool. Suspected pretty hard, but I didn't know until I knew. Totally. Okay. The argument I was. Uh, I think that's the argument. I, I think was from making. a scripting standpoint, though, there is really interesting like seeding with that character, and that makes sense to me that you suspected him early because I think I think the film does a good job of like seeding his potential like. Uh, danger, but there's also a line. Uh, th- there's the moment early, early in the film where he tells Annie that you know the oldest should maybe uh, go see a counselor because he's probably dealing with some stuff with the death of his dad. And like the idea that Greg Kinnear's character is revealed to like be repressing and not dealing with the death of his father, and potentially that is a, a contributing factor to his becoming a murderer, 
is kind of a fun and interesting choice. Uh, I like that. That really mm. feels, again, this is the Billy Bob Thornton of it. That I don't know that Billy Bob Thornton grew up without a dad. Maybe this is uh, his co-writer's uh, life bleeding through. So I, I won't. Oh, Tom Epperson. Maybe. Yeah, so yeah. I won't assign like who this comes from, but that's some that's some interesting like emotionally interrogative stuff, right? Of like to have the eventual villain of your film to like to offer kind of like sound uh, advice, interesting call, and to have that sound advice like potentially like play into the larger psychology of a murderer in your film. It's pretty interesting. I like that. Yeah, um, I guess the thing that I want to end on, since we, it seems like we're kind of ready to wrap up, uh, is maybe wrong man's. Uh, well, actually, we've we've talked about that plenty. Maybe I do just want to end on Giovanni Ribisi because Arthur and I both kind of have a problem with that. Um, I, I agree with you, Dustin. I think having a character again with the, the conversations and interrogations this film is uh, presenting for you know uh, both uh, just you know uh, the violence of a patriarchy or just kind of the general like. Uh, ways in which, uh, sexual expression can, uh, be twisted into something that's not great, um, in these kind of secretive small towns, you know, however you want to tackle that. The, the film has its eye on that. Uh, and I think, you know, dealing with the Giovanni Rubisi's character having this repressed trauma that he, he's constantly on the edge trigger of having. Alert, a, trigger yeah, alert. Yeah, thank you. Sorry. Alert. Thank you, Dustin. Content warning. We're going to talk about Giovanni Rubisi's character. And if you're not aware, uh, as we've kind of alluded to, his, his background does uh, involve some, uh, some sexual trauma. So content warning there. Thank you, Dustin. Uh, yeah. So it, it is revealed that the breakthrough he's almost about to have constantly is that his, his father abused him. Uh, mm-hmm. Giovanni Rubisi had, look, we talked about, uh, the, the lines, uh, when we talked about, uh, 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 last week's film and performances there, uh, and Paul Dano doing his damnedest throughout his career to, to never go, uh, full R word, as it were, uh, to, to reference, uh, Tropic Thunder. Boy, howdy. I, I think Giovanni Rubisi's performance is over the line at times. And I, I think he, I don't think he knows it. Somebody should have talked to him though, because I, it just feels, I don't know. It feels like a caricature. It doesn't feel like a real human being to me a lot of the time. I guess – all right, full disclosure, victim of sexual abuse myself. Um, I, I guess the reason why I find it somewhat believable is because there is a way in which uh, one discounts those kinds of things in such a way that it feels like repressed memory. And so, I mean – there's no part of myself and my own experiences or any of that kind of stuff where I don't remember or was repressed or something like that where like I didn't know it ever happened and somebody had to unlock whatever was hidden in my mind or something like that. There are ways in which though you excuse it to be normal until that gets unlocked. And as I was watching the film, I thought that was the best cinematic way to reveal that. It's oh, I love me, that uh, scene. I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay. If that makes sense. Totally. Uh, and again, I, I guess I, I want to say that, like, I do like the arc of the character, uh, a, a lot. This is some specifically, some issues I have with a couple of choices that he makes as an actor. Yeah. I mean, but, the, the, the sort of, like, conglomeration of the cluster of various sort of other schizophrenias that are surrounding mm-hmm. that. Like, obviously, sexual abuse doesn't cause that. Right. Well, and again, uh, it, if you have, you know, if, if, if you're a person who might have otherwise had some, like, you know, some 
severe mental health struggles, you know, an early trauma like that is only going to make them worse. So it is not unbelievable to me. Yeah. It's not unbelievable to me that like this systemic abuse can break a human being. Like it can, it absolutely can. Uh, I just, it's, and again, I'm struggling with my uh, reaction to this performance because I do think Jivon Rubisi like is trying to give a earnest, empathetic, real lived uh, performance. I just think it's a little early in his career, and he's he's chosen to do way too many ticks. I think is maybe what it is. Which is, I'm glad you brought up the kind of the implied schizophrenia of the character, the kind of like just the, the general quirks and ticks that this character has. Uh, I'm glad we got to that because that is, I think, maybe the big bug of it for me. Okay, so yeah, a distinction I'm trying to make then, I guess, in terms of what you're saying, and I I, I actually agree with you. Like the way in which his performance is kind of big and broad and explosive at times in ways that maybe don't entirely make sense. Um, I, 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 I feel what you're saying there because, you know, that's not always the case. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't feel true to me. Uh, that's what I want to say. But at the same time, the fact that the character is seeking some sort of unlocking of the information that at some point begins to realize, mm-hmm. Hey, you know what? The things that I've always known, maybe they're not quite right. Like that, seems to track very well with the experience of myself and other people that I've talked to who were children and also abused, that there's a way in which you you normalize it at one point at the moment to cope, and then adulthood, maturity, and those kind of things come on, and then you try to figure out just, just what the hell happened and uh, what that exactly looks like. Like, that... Uh, for me, um, him seeking the, the uh, Kate Blanchett's character at that point, Mrs. Wilson, she functions more like a counselor at that point. Totally. Uh, uh, for me. And, and so I buy that and that's screenwriting. Now, what you're saying is about his performance itself. And yes, it is very ticky and it is very like multiple spectrums of multiple mental illnesses. And that I think, um, I think is uh, maybe rings a little false. Well, that, I think the thing. Oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was just saying. Insofar as what you said a moment ago was that if you've already got sort of like an existing mental illness or a propensity towards those, obviously some early sexual trauma would exacerbate that. Sure, agreed. But that's not always the case for all of the people, and not even most of the people. So, and I guess I want to pivot back to positivity uh, because again, there are things I like yeah. about it, and I, I want to mention. Uh, I think the, the reveal scene of kind of where we learn exactly what's going on with his character i think is uh fraught and I, that, that's the moment where i like i see giovanni as a person and and that character as a person i like see them in tandem and i go okay i know what's going on here i get what he was going for i love that moment and the, the moment where he confronts uh donnie donnie barksdale uh, keanu's character uh, arthur mentioned that earlier uh i we, love it great scene uh reminds me a lot of uh of a scene in punch drunk love uh that's not too dissimilar honestly uh but yeah, I, I think that's a great scene, and I, I think that is maybe the best thing about the character of Buddy Cole is, uh, you know, we talked about, and you know, we talked about the the spectrums of, of masculinity that exist within this film, and to have a character who is, you know, is, is traumatized by the society in which he lives, uh, society we live in one, uh, <laughs> to see this 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 guy kind of overcome that and get to be. Uh, to struggle with the rage that uh, his, his formative years have like instilled in him 
uh, and to try and find a, a way in which his that rage instills a fearlessness in him uh, that allows him to, to be a defender of others, I think, is, is really nice and is kind of sweet uh, without trafficking in any kind of like retributive violence stuff, which the film very easily could have done. Um, right. You know, it's 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 very nice. And again, I think when that quirk of the character's backstory, I shouldn't have called it a quirk, when that aspect of a character, the character's backstory was revealed, I was a little apprehensive. Uh, where his story kind of eventually leaves us off at, I thought was very nice and kind of did redeem my thoughts on, on uh, Buddy as a character. So I just, I did want to backpedal it because there are things I like about it. I just, again, the tickiness of it really made me wrestle with that performance for quite a bit longer than I expected to. And uh, maybe it is the class stuff. Uh, as Arthur alluded to, this film does kind of talk about class and Annie's function in this town as more of a counselor to people who can't afford a counselor, uh, I think is really kind of lovely. And probably the thing about uh, his mother that Billy Bob Thornton most wanted to convey uh, in this story is that uh, you know, people who are poor don't have access to mental health services. They have to rely on a network of, of, of friendship and uh, of mutual assistance. Uh, and I think that's really a, a lovely message for the for the film to have. Honestly, uh, it just it does become frustrating when a Hollywood conception of class disparity uh, makes people seem like a, a cartoon character from the fifties, I guess. And uh, th that that's kind of what was sticking in my craw uh, about some characters and, and uh, buddy in particular. But yeah, I think there's a lot here to love. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I want to keep it heavy, deep and real for just one more second. And we're going to move on to a verdict. And this is what I want to say to you, dear listener. Um, if you are yourself a victim of sexual abuse, anyway, uh, what I want to say to you is this personally is that, Vengeance will not give you satisfaction, and suicide will not give you relief. Um, there are people around you who love you, who care about you. There are conversations to be had. It's not worth it. There's a suicide prevention hotline. Call it in. If you want to DM me, I will happily talk to you. Um, you do. There, there are better solutions, and there are ways towards healing, and it doesn't have to end. Your story does not end with things that happened with you years ago. Your story is in your future, and keep living towards it. So that's all I want to say. I'm done with that. So oh, that was, thank you for saying that, Dustin. Yeah, we there are aspects of where Buddy's story ends up that uh, made what you just said necessary, and I'd kind of forgotten about that as I was talking about kind of the hopeful note it goes out on. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, yeah, man. Hell yeah. Let's let's take care of each other, y'all. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Verdicts. Let's have them, shall we? All right, Arthur, I'm going to go to you first. What do you say? Shelf or trash with The Gift? I will say trash on The Gift. Ah! All right, fuck. Uh, I'm with you, Arthur. Uh, despite the, the robust conversation that we've had, uh, I like a lot of Raimi's better. I like a lot of supernatural thrillers better. Uh, it's fine. I don't hate it. You don't need to catch up with it. Uh, soft trashing here myself. As a person who's a huge fan of gothic everything, the Southern Gothic in particular, Flannery O'Connor and William Faulkner, uh, for the literary things, this is great to fill in that stuff. So I'm going to say shelf, but that's probably very personal for me. So there you go, dear listener. Those were our thoughts on The Gift. Um, I hear we're going to do another show, though. Is that true? Um, just checked. Uh, the stats, and yes, it is true. Uh, the spreadsheets alluded to us doing more episodes. Uh, so next week, uh, we are going to hop on the flicks of nets, uh, and we are going to look at a little uh, caper uh, about a man who uh, who fought greed uh, as we take a look at Kevin Costner, Alan Rickman, Robin Hood, 
Prince of Thieves. That's right, listener. If you thought we were done talking about class or you didn't think we talked about class enough this episode, woohoo! We're going to talk about Season the Means of Production next week. It's going to be a good time. Uh, if you have thoughts on... We're not doing it, but anyway, well, we'll talk more about that later. That we will. If you have thoughts on uh, Robin Hood as a figure of uh, Marxist rebellion, if you have thoughts on Arthur's spreadsheets and his uh, consorting of them to do magical things, and if you have a problem with that, or if you just want to talk about the gift, there's a lot of ways you can get in touch with us. We're on Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, DMs are open if you want to go talk to Dustin about some heavy stuff. Uh, that's D. What is that? At DM cells. At Dustin underscore cells. Thank you for asking the question. Yes, Dustin. I underscore thought the Dustin cells underscore cells there. At Twitter. Yeah. Uh, hey. Hey, look, my DMs are open, too. Uh, I'm not as qualified to help you with your problems as Dustin is, so, you know, you should probably just talk to me about uh, movies. or. I'm actually not qualified at all. That's true. None of us are qualified, but we care about you, so, uh, you know, follow us uh, on social medias. It's at good underscore trash if you want to talk about movies or see what kind of movie stuff we're talking about. How are you passing the time in this quarantine? You can let us know over there. Uh, if you got long-form feedback about this episode, next week's episode, or any show you've ever put in your ear holes, uh, that's going to be good. Trashgenrecast at gmail.com. Uh, love to get emails. It's real nice and sweet. Thank you. Uh, you've listened to podcasts before. Rate, review, subscribe. Uh, however you listen to this each week, you know what to do. Uh, finally, uh, if you want to hear what we uh, are watching uh, when we're not doing this show, uh, if you've liked that kind of banter we had going on at the start of the episode, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash GTM uh, to get our bonus content. Uh, sometimes we just talk about the stuff we're watching and reading and playing. Other times we uh, we play a tabletop game uh, set in the Monster of the Week's uh, system uh dustin's a uh, a priest with delusions of uh, doc holiday grandeur uh I- i'm a demon that's kind of got bart simpson energy we have a good time that's patreon.com forward slash gtm if you want to help us keep the lights on or any of that bonus content sounds interesting to you that's it that's the ancillary materials you- you're done reading the footnotes of the show thank you so much for listening to the show dear listener you keep watching we'll keep talking and we'll see you all next time 